I would tell myself that it's okay that I felt the pain that I did because I never felt safe in expressing it. Because when I did express it, it was told to me, oh no, you can't possibly remember that, you were too young. And I would say to her, even if your memories are filtered and not completely detail-oriented, that doesn't take away from the implicit memory that you hold in your body, and that is very real, and you have every right to feel that, and you have every right to express that. Everybody. Welcome to the For Women Who Roar podcast. I am here with the lovely Nika. She's amazing. She's a poet, a writer, a activist, and just an amazing friend. So I'm so excited for you to meet her and hear a bit of her story. So welcome, Nika. Thank you, Megan. It's a little <laughs> odd to hear myself described in those words, but I'll take it. <laughs> How would you describe yourself? <laughs> a human who writes. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll stop letting my shame push away those labels of poet, writer, activist. I'm really excited to hear um, just about more of your story and especially your background with how you got into poetry. So would you just kind of start there? Just tell us a little bit about how you came to be you. Yeah. Um, well, I'll start with a snippet of that question, which is how I came into poetry and you know, I started writing poems as young as like six, seven years old, and I still have some of them just like laying around on these scraps of paper, but that's not when I would say I got connected to poetry. I mean, I wrote like through my teenage years, I processed a lot of heartbreak that way in high school, but I never considered myself a writer. And it wasn't until uh, two, almost two years ago now when my biological mother passed away that I started actually writing poetry. And it wasn't so much that I was writing poetry that it was just flowing out of me. Uh, it didn't necessarily feel like a choice. It was just something that had to happen. It just had to come out. And I noticed through that process, it was almost like a cleansing or a purging in some way. And it was the first time I really felt like I was giving voice to myself, to some of my inner experiences that I had shied away from exploring just because trauma's hard. And through that process, then I began to share my poetry. And then that's when I would say I would consider myself, uh, well, other people consider me a poet at that point. Mm -hmm. So that started January 2016. No, I'm sorry, 2017. And it just keeps flowing out. It just keeps happening. It hasn't stopped. Has it been like cathartic for you to just let these words move through you? Has it kind of reconnected you with different events in your life? Absolutely. Yes. It's odd for me at this point now to be sharing my poetry in a public way because it was never written with the intention of it being public, mm -hmm. with it being shared. Like, this was my way of sorting through my shit, like just a pig rolling around in it. <laughs> yeah, uh, very self-indulgent, it felt. It was just like, 
I didn't have a choice. I had to go into it. And um, to be honest, you know, I have training as a therapist and I practice as a therapist for many years, but going into writing and allowing it to flow out is by far one of the most cathartic things I've ever done for myself. It is the way that I've gotten myself through the past two years and have been able to access so much healing. Mm-hmm. And you started sharing publicly, like in spoken word events too, really recently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, July. Whoa. Not that long. Yeah. What was that like, uh, actually speaking the words out in public? So terrifying. <laughs> also, is it okay if I curse in this podcast? Oh, yeah, totally. Fuck yeah. Great. (laughs) Beautiful. All the fucks. (laughs) Well, that's funny. You should say all the fucks because when I decided to start sharing my poetry in public with the spoken word, it was like I had run out of fucks to give. All right, world, here it is. I don't care anymore. This is me. This is what I have to say. I'm not toning it down. I'm not smoothing it over. I'm not apologizing for it. It just is what it is. Which for someone who calls themselves a recovering overachiever and perfectionist was fucking terrifying Mm -hmm. because I want approval. I want to be good. I want praise, but I didn't write it for anybody but me. So how did you um, begin to give yourself permission to let go of that need of approval? Yeah, that's a big question. Mm -hmm. I don't know that it was so much a choice as just a process that happened to me. You know, okay, I'm about to get a little bit into my woo-woo shit. After my mom died, I was trying to connect to anything that would give me a sense of meaning or purpose, anything to get some ground underneath me because it felt like the earth had disappeared from beneath my feet. Getting into astrology was actually really helpful for me. So I call the past two years uh, my Saturn return. And for any astrology folks out there, you know, that's like when... Life just kind of kicks you in the shins and tears down all of your pillars and makes it like burns your world down like you have to start over. So I didn't make the choice to stop caring and give myself the voice. It was every single pillar in my life had collapsed. Every foundation I had built for myself to that point was gone. My mother had died. I didn't have access to my career anymore. I stopped practicing as a therapist because I didn't think it was ethical to practice in an active state of PTSD. Not good for me or my clients. Started exploring my sexuality. My marriage was ended. My home was disrupted. Every single thing was gone. When everything is gone, you don't have any ability to care what people think anymore. It's like a completely new foundation begins. Exactly. I had to rebuild. Yeah. And in rebuilding, I had to decide how I wanted to do that. If I wanted to keep myself small and masked and voiceless, or if I wanted to actually stretch and grow and live into this vision or experience of myself that I had felt was there all along, but had been way too fearful to access. Oh, that's all so important. I've like been through such a similar process of that kind of excavating of this self that people saw and experienced of me and really coming to a place of learning to just love who you are without apology is probably, I think, the most healing work we can do because it's not just for us, but like people around us experience that too. And it kind of ushers them into their own authenticity. Yeah, absolutely. Self-love is this like beautiful elixir 
of magic that once you enter into a compassionate space with yourself, once you stop listening to that voice in your head that says you're garbage, you're worthless, look at everything that has happened, you're a piece of shit, essentially. I have a very intense inner critic. Mm -hmm. But once I stop listening to that and just leaned into gentleness to myself and compassion towards myself and nurturing myself, that's when I could feel myself. And I'll tell you what, it gives you a light that is irresistible to other people. And it allows that light to glow within them as well. And so when my self-critic shows up and says, oh, you're getting full of yourself, how dare you show your work to the world? Who do you think you are? I quiet it and I look at messages I receive from other people that say that through reading my words of non-judgment, compassion towards myself, they can access it for themselves as well. And that is the elixir. That is magic. Mm -hmm. Do you think that has been a large part of your work as a therapist too? Yeah. And it's been so relieving for me actually to not be practicing these past couple of years <laughs> because I feel like even in the frame of the therapeutic relationship, you know, there are certain therapist-client boundaries that you have to follow. And as much as um, it's encouraged to show up in the space fully as a therapist, you can't ever really fully show up. Mm -hmm. um, but something I always showed up with with my clients was this sense of, humanness and fallibility and just like hey I'm a human too and we're in this struggle together and like let's figure it out together I'm not above you I don't know all of the answers but I'm willing to get in the shit with you and roll around in it till mm -hmm. we figure out what we can do with it what gold is in there yeah I think the best therapeutic experiences I've had with people or therapists is when they felt like they came off the pedestal and they would always be positioned mm -hmm. on a pedestal because you're working through like transference and all yeah. of a sudden the therapist is like a family member or someone you idolize and then you're hashing it all out with them. So to have a therapist really come down to earth and meet you there and be honest and real, I think is like super key to, I don't know, working through those wounds. Absolutely. You kind of spoke to this, but I'd like to hear a little more about a time in your life where you felt your voice was muffled or you felt silence. Yeah. You know, I'm going to take a breath with that question. Mm -hmm. So much of my life I have felt silenced because I have this experience of being a person who is adopted and who went through the foster care system. I mean, that experience of being put into foster care, adopted, is a bridge, being a bridge in a lot of ways, because I have access to my biological experience and also access to this experience of being essentially placed into another world, right? Like placed into a different family system. So I was adopted from a family that, you know, my biological family struggles with a lot of things. There's a reason I was placed into foster care. So, you know, a lot of trauma there, a lot of addiction. I don't even have any judgments towards my biological family because it just is so steeped in trauma. How can I expect anyone to behave in any way other than how they have, right? Mm -hmm. So coming from poverty and drug addiction to being placed into a 
seemingly very like picture perfect home, white middle class suburbs of Chicago home was so disorienting and confusing. And so I felt like I had this voice of this experience from both worlds. So that's one aspect where I felt voiceless because I didn't feel that I had permission to speak about it. I wasn't adopted until I was 10 and I didn't feel like I could talk about the pain of that because it was always this story of like, oh, you're so lucky. You're the one who got out. Aren't you so like grateful to your mother for adopting you and giving you this beautiful life? Look at all these opportunities that you have. And so in that praise or in that um, reflection from other people, I felt very silenced in my pain of being separated from my biological family, Mm -hmm. even though it wasn't a great situation. I still longed for them. Mm -hmm. That's one aspect. I also felt um, very silenced in my experience of... um, So I used the word bridge earlier between foster care and adoption. I also feel a sense of being a bridge in being a biracial person. So my biological father is Mexican, and I didn't know that until I was 20. Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) I didn't know. I had no idea. Um, But I had always felt this, like, weird connection to Latino culture, and I couldn't speak to it because I'm fucking white. Like I look white. I have blue eyes, light skin. And it always felt appropriative or wrong to speak about that, that desire to feel connectedness to my Latino culture. So when you were 20, how did you find out that your dad was Mexican? I believe it was 20 when my biological grandfather passed away. So it was at his funeral that I was reconnected to my biological mother, Diane my older sister, Shauna, and my younger sister, Angelina, whom I also didn't know existed until I was 20. I met her at my grandfather's funeral. And at that funeral is when I learned a bunch of information about my history from my mother and my sister. And that's when I found out that my father was Mexican. Mm -hmm. And you said you had kind of felt that like connection in your blood even before this experience. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. What did that feel like for you? How was that resonant in your body? I have always been a deeply empathic person, meaning that I tend to be the person who can walk into a room and just sense or feel what is happening in the room. If there's any kind of tension, if there's anything, and that's also a PTSD symptom, right? Like that hyper attunement to your environment because that's what keeps you safe. And this relates to your question because as a child, being in an area of Chicago that is highly segregated, but also like incredibly diverse. Mm -hmm. So there's pockets of Chicago that are just Latino, Hispanic. There are pockets of Chicago that are just Black. There Mm -hmm. are pockets of Chicago where like, these are where the Polish people live. This is where the Italian people live. Racism is incredibly prevalent. And I could feel from people, their racism towards Latino people, comments, those sorts of things. And it just hit me and hurt me in my heart in a way that I couldn't describe or understand. And that's even true as an adult, you know, like watching um, what has been happening with 
children and parents getting separated at the border. It just fucking hurts. And I didn't understand why I was so sensitive to people being treated in a way or talked about in a way based on their skin color because I'm white and I benefit from this power structure that we live in Mm -hmm. in very real ways, right? But I could feel that pain. And it's not my pain to claim because I don't experience it in the same way that someone who actually has that pigmentation in their skin does. And yet I'm an empath and I fucking feel it in my blood. And you've written some poetry pretty openly about your adoption. Mm -hmm. Would you like to share some of that with us? (laughs) Sure. If you haven't heard Nika's poetry, it's really raw and very visceral. It kind of does a little gut punch. It's it's incredibly beautiful. So I'm looking forward to y'all hearing it. So based off of what I've been talking about, I'll read you one about adoption. And then um, I'll go ahead and read the one about being biracial as well, since that one relates to what we've been speaking about. I call this poem Deep Well. And this is one of the poems that poured out of me in the initial months after my biological mother died, which was in a very traumatic fashion. And this poem, so if my mother died in January, this poem was written in March, so two months after the fact. That gives you some context to where I was at when this was written. You were in the well. I was in the well. I was a puddle. I was trauma soup. Okay. Adoption is the only trauma that people are expected to be grateful for. Aren't you so lucky? Aren't you so glad that you're not with those monsters anymore? Confusing ancestry for destruction, pain for character defects, convinced that I descended from crack and cocaine Unable to see the humanness and beauty in my mother's pain. Feeling only anger in the cracked ribs of abandonment. My mouth clanging from the metallic taste of truth. That none of us are perfect. And that deep well of sadness is the truest thing about me. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah. When I listen to poetry, I always close my eyes and I feel like I can feel the person in that space. And I really felt that. So thank you for um, kind of inviting us into that world, which felt really sad and confusing and longing. So much longing. So much longing. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of my poetry, the the theme in it is just this sense of not quite fitting anywhere, being that bridge. I can communicate in a lot of different languages, so to speak, but are any of them really mine? And that's, poetry is my language. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've been talking a lot on these podcasts about how poetry and music is the unsayable language. It, it holds the, the kind of unspeakable things, the grief things, the, the trauma things that we can't really voice in just regular conversation it gets to that guttural unspeakable place yeah i think it's the way of the body it's the way that the body communicate if the body doesn't have words poetry gives it yes and the body does have words 
it's just that it's in it's in the somatic right Mm -hmm. the body speaking but it might be hard to interpret yeah we know this as trauma survivors that the body is always speaking and learning to interpret that language is uh, a long painful process absolutely and it can be quite overwhelming and quite frightening if you don't have the tools or the ability to feel what is happening in your body without being hijacked by it and i think that's what poetry has allowed me to do is to dip into my body in a way that is like you know we just dipped into the well but we were able to come out of it it's the point of it is not to get stuck there because our bodies do hold that pain and I mean, it's, it's in us on a cellular level, mm-hmm. right? And our bodies even hold like our ancestors' pain. So much science coming out about intergenerational trauma and epigenetics. But the point is like, while there's no magic eraser, there's no delete button for these sensations, they are tolerable and even have teaching and lessons and beauty in them if we're able to become resilient enough to tap into them and then come back out. So I actually uh, wrote this poem after listening to a podcast. So here you go, guys. Podcasts matter. (laughs) Uh, Called Still Processing, which is a New York Times podcast, uh, two culture writers, and they explore um, different issues around race and pop culture. They did an episode specifically about biracial people and how this is a voice that is often not heard or misunderstood and that, again, that sense of not quite belonging anywhere. So after listening to that podcast, this poem bubbled up from my belly. I wasn't super involved in it. It just came out and um, I didn't try and apologize for it, because, even though it might be kind of controversial just because this was an authentic expression. I am a bridge between two worlds, whiteness in my winter skin, lightness in my eyes. But I turn golden in the summer, and my nipples are brown. You have an ethnic pussy, she said, my Mexican only seen in the dark. I don't even know my father's tongue, my English dripping with shame. What right do I have to claim that I am half Chicana? But it's like fire water in my veins. I burn with passion, rage my sweet drink to think that I can feel my ancestors' pain and wear the face of the oppressor. I am at war with myself. Biracial. What does it feel like? in your body after you read your poetry out loud? Well, there's always, I call them the vulnerability shakes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> These wee little trembles that become bigger trembles. That's very normal for all of y'all who maybe have felt shaky after sharing. Um, it's a discharge response. It's your nervous system letting go of held energy. Interesting. I, I never knew that. I've definitely experienced that anytime I've Definitely after poetry readings, but also anytime I've spoken about trauma experiences, Mm -hmm. I'll be shaking so intensely from the inside, even it doesn't really show 
on the outside. I could tell it was something with the nervous system, but I didn't realize there was like a name for it. Um, no, I definitely, I feel shaky. And then I feel this like <sighs> opening in my chest and ability to breathe. And then comes fear and the desire to withdraw and retreat. Like, oh, what if I said something that's upsetting to someone? What if I've hurt someone? That's always the fear. And then comes the rebelliousness in me. Well, fuck it. This is my voice and I have a right to share it. And then comes the judgment and the inner critic. Well, like, you can't just say whatever you want. You need to be intentional. But I do it anyway. Mm -hmm. Good. Good for you. Good for all of us. For someone that is just getting into this kind of creative momentum or wants to be expressive with their voice, how would you encourage them to kind of break into writing or expression? Be brave enough to pick up the pen. I have on my, what is this finger called? Your index finger? Mm -hmm. uh, pointer finger? <laughs> pointer finger. Uh, I have the word begin tattooed mm -hmm. and it's on my left hand because I write with my left hand and it's a reminder when I look down and I see that word written on my finger to just begin, take ego out of it, take fear out of it, take expectation of outcome out of it, just begin. There is no reason to begin other than to begin. And it doesn't have to be something beautiful, something magical. It, it doesn't even have to be good. You just have to start. Mm -hmm. I think the blank page is probably one of the most terrifying things, oh. right? It just like has eyes and it like is looking back at you, pronouncing the fear of failure. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. It's intimidating. Mm -hmm. It's intimidating. So something that I will do because like I said, I'm a perfectionist and recovering overachiever is I will set a timer and this is specifically with writing. I'll set a timer for 10 minutes and I'll give myself one word as a prompt and then I'll just free write. I'll just go. And if literally my free write for 10 minutes is two words, that's enough because I've got two words. And oftentimes that's the space from which the like gold emerges. So then I'll take that, whatever it is that I've created in that 10 minutes of just letting go of my ego, letting go of needing it to be good. And then I'll look at what I've written and then I'll go through and I'll underline and I'll extract the gold from that. And then I'll write another 10 minutes just from that. Mm. And it's like going deeper and deeper and deeper. What's the story under the story, under the story, under the story. And then I'll like start to feel scared shitless. And that's when I know that I've gotten to something good. Yes, definitely. If you start feeling afraid of what you're writing, if you start feeling all the emotion attached, you know that yeah. you've dug deep enough to the yeah. gold. Mm -hmm. And I'll do it. Um, I joke that my favorite place to write is in bars. Uh, and you know, it's the funny, like, oh, if I need inspiration, I can just look up and eavesdrop and listen to funny people's stories. And that's like, that's a half truth. The reason I write in bars is because I am, I'm a juxtaposition of a person who presents as very open and I'm actually pretty intensely guarded. <laughs> I have a lot of walls up. And so to do something as vulnerable as writing in a public space is this juxtaposition of openness and closedness that forces me 
to be brave, to write about things like sex and drugs and love and adoption and grief and trauma, while like Joe Schmo at the bar next to me is sitting drinking his beer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it brings a little levity to the depth that you're in. Absolutely. Yes. Otherwise, you just fall into the page and it's like, God, I hope I can get out of this. Mm -hmm. Who's going to pull me out? Oh, Joe. Joe. Yeah. Joe's going to pull me out. He's over talking about <laughs> the Sounders or something. Right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> like the world continues on even when I've disappeared into the page and writing in public spaces helps me remember that. Do you ever feel like, I know for me when I am doing a lot of deep writing, which honestly all of my writing is a lot of free writing and then it just, I fall into the page for sure. Um, do you ever feel dissociative, like, after the fact? <laughs> I call it my writing haze. Yes. It's my writing haze. So if I'm writing at a bar and I've, like, really gone in deep and then I just need a break, right? Like, yeah. I'm going to go outside and smoke a cigarette. But if someone tries to come up and have a conversation with me while I'm having that moment, that private moment to myself, I'm looking at them with, like, glazed eyes. I'm like, I'm sorry. I'm deep in the creative flow. I can't talk to you. I can't come out. And yeah. speaking of voice, like it's okay to not speak to people when they want to speak to you. Like mm -hmm. I've gotten so good at holding my boundaries while also being kind. What does that look like? Like, hi, I'm walking up to you. I'm like, Nika, what's up girl? And you're like in your writing haze and you don't really want to talk to anybody. How would you hold that boundary? Then I would say, Hi, Megan. I'm in my creative flow right now. I'm having a time. I'm going to go walk into the alley and have this cigarette, but I'll come say hi to you when I feel like I've come out of it. Have you ever had anybody be like, bitch, no? <laughs> oh, of course. Really? What of did you, course. What did you say? How did you respond? This has been one of the best gifts for me. And you remember how earlier I said I ran out of fucks to give? Hmm. Like, I just ran out of fucks to give. Like, if someone gives me a nasty response to me just holding space for myself, I don't need to engage with them. That's not my issue. That's not my stuff. That's their stuff. doesn't matter. I can be like, okay, I'm sorry. You're having a hard day. I'm going over here. Mm -hmm. Literally, the other day, I was in Denver uh, for a work conference, and this was embarrassing. I got triggered by a PTSD presentation and it had been a long time since I got really activated like that, but they were showing um, a slide of two brain scans, a brain scan of a person who had had a secure, healthy attachment with their parents as a child, mm -hmm. and then a brain scan of a person who had experienced emotional abuse or neglect at the hands of their parents. And looking at these brains, I just felt completely flooded because my mind was saying, See, your brain's fucked. You're just like doomed to have unhealthy relationships for the rest of your life, blah, 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 blah. We all know the whole, right? So I excused myself and I went outside for a cigarette, which, sorry, mom, I know. <laughs> I'm a smoker. It, I picked it up in Italy while I was farming to process my grief for my mother. It's deeply connected to my mother. I will quit when I'm ready. Anyway, I go outside to have my smoke. And I'm squatting near the ground, smoking, letting tears stream down my face because I've learned that when I'm triggered, if I try and suppress it and push it down, whew, it's going to come back tenfold later, which is not something I particularly want to deal with. 
And this man approached me and he's like, hey, can I have a cigarette? How's your day going? But like kind of in this odd fashion. And I just looked at him and I said, I'm not feeling well. I don't really want to talk to you right now. And then I put my headphones in and then he's like, oh, stupid bitch. And just walked away. And in the past, something like that might have rattled me or shaken me, but I don't owe that person my engagement or my conversation. And I don't owe them anything when I'm trying to nurture and take care of myself. Now, there's a balance between giving and taking in our worlds. I'm not advocating that everyone just like completely shuts out the world all the time. What I'm saying is that it's okay to give yourself what you need. Mm -hmm. And that's not bad. Our culture teaches us that you should always be engaged. You should always be self-sacrificing, particularly as women. This is what it is that we have to give our attention, our emotional labor, our bodies, our smiles. I don't need to give that all the time. And I'm fine with that. Amen. As the famous RuPaul says, what other people think of me is none of my business. <laughs> I love Ru. I think the past few years for me, I've been kind of rediscovering that I am a separate self than other people. Growing up, I kind of just let myself morph into everyone. So like, even now, it's still a little different. I'll be having a conversation and I'll be talking with someone and I realize I'm echoing their demeanor, like whether it's the posturing or even my voice will change. Like if I'm talking to someone that's really like, hey, everybody, I'm just like, hey. I call that chameleoning. Oh, man. Yeah. I get I, it. I totally grew up as such a chameleon. And I think that that separation is a huge part of being able to step into your own voice, you know, without yeah. apology and saying, this is what I need. But it's taken me a long time. I'm still mm -hmm. learning to finally say and take kind of back my power mm -hmm. and recognize that I am my own self. I do have my own choice um, because I think I lived out of those kind of traumatized space of not having my own power. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's so important to be able to own that as anyone, but it, especially as a woman. Yes. Boundaries are magic. <laughs> and what I mean by boundaries, because I just learned them and I'm still learning them. I don't think we ever fully learn boundaries. It's always uh, an exploration, right? Because our boundaries shift and change as we do. Um, but what I mean by boundaries is understanding the difference between self and others. And also understanding the connection between self and others. So while my boundary with that man in Denver while I was in a PTSD response was quite rigid because I had nothing to give him in that state. In another time, if I felt open to it, if I felt resourced, maybe I would have a conversation. Maybe I would give a cigarette, but it's understanding the difference between my needs, their needs, and how those things dance together, how they interact, how they play. And my lesson in life has been really fighting against this story or this narrative that I'm a selfish person who only thinks about myself. And if that's my story, if I do something like not acknowledge another person or don't interact with them when they want that from me, then I feel selfish. It reinforces that story for me. So boundaries, having a sense of myself, understanding that giving to myself, parenting myself, nurturing myself is quite different 
than being selfish has been life-changing. I think we live out of uh, narratives and narratives that we're told when we're young about who we are and what we should do and how to behave and what's good and what's bad. And we really have to kind of basically flip the script. Yeah. Can I read a poem about that? Yes, please. This is also a poem related to adoption, but it speaks to this idea of learning that the narrative of what makes me good or lovable is not the thing that makes me good or lovable. So we were speaking about selfishness. This one's a little bit different. I've referenced many times recovering overachiever, perfectionism. Uh, That's another narrative that's strong in my life. Mm -hmm. And this poem speaks to that. Praise is my oxygen, affirming that I have something good to contribute. Four years old and deeply understanding that to cause a fuss could mean chaos and abandonment. But sometimes my little body just couldn't hold all that pain. And I would wail, holler, scream, beat my fists on the ground, vibrating with rage that my existence hinged on proving that I was worth keeping. The words foster child branding me with hot shame. I'll be good, I'll be better, I'll get straight A's, I'll go to college, I'll make a name for myself. And then maybe I'll feel lovable. Except no amount of achievement fills this hole that lives in my chest. All burnt metal shaped into the form of a woman who needs to learn to stop hustling for her worthiness. And the only person that she needs to hear the words I'm proud of you from is herself. Thank you. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting that that was your point because the last question I have for you is, it feels like you kind of answered it in that, <laughs> but it is, as a therapist, what would you like to say to your eight-year-old self? Yeah, that was four-year-old Nika. Mm-hmm. Eight-year-old Nika, okay. Eight-year-old Nika was still in foster care, still not adopted wondering why, very concerned about fitting in in elementary school, very concerned about not appearing too smart. I was placed into gifted classes, which set me apart in a way, and I just wanted to feel the same as everybody else. And also, that was a time when, so this was prior to my foster parents who later adopted me divorcing. And so this was one of the like few idyllic moments in my life. So this was, you know, the white picket fence house in the suburbs, enrolled in dance lessons, enrolled in swim lessons, enrolled in voice lessons, friends in school, all that. But What I would say to eight-year-old me is that even though I was going along with everything and by all appearances from the outside looked like a very happy child, I would tell myself that 
it's okay that I felt the pain that I did because I never felt safe in expressing it. Because when I did express it, it was told to me, oh no, you can't possibly remember that, you were too young. And I would say to her, even if your memories are filtered and not completely detail-oriented, that doesn't take away from the implicit memory that you hold in your body, and that is very real, and you have every right to feel that, and you have every right to express that. You don't have to look happy or be perfect on the outside all of the time. That one is really, that message is speaking to me as well and my eight-year-old self, so I'm just going to borrow yeah. your Nika message for my own eight-year-old self, if you don't mind, mm -hmm. and let her receive that. So thank you for counseling yourself and counseling young me too. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, my friend, so much for being here and for sharing even just a glimpse of your life, your story, your passion through poetry. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's been an honor. <laughs> <laughs>